A billion hours ago, Neanderthals were making spearheads in the Stone Age. A billion hours from now, it'll be the year 116,174 AD. With a billion hours to play with, you could make roughly 13,000 round trips to Alpha Centauri at the speed of light. Or you could spend it all playing Sid Meier's Civilization, so I'm told. One billion hours is the sort of number that is humbling to the point of incomprehensibility. And it is a wildly conservative estimate at that. The game distribution service Steam only began collecting player data in earnest within the last decade. And 1 billion is actually the number of hours played on Civilization V, from its release in 2010 up through 2016. A six-year window into one game in a series that spans 29 years and 12 editions, not to mention the expansion packs. To imagine the hours devoted to all the incarnations of Civilization since 1991 is, well, incomprehensible. I wouldn't want to try. What's more, any fair assessment of Civilization's success would have to include all the other games I've crafted along the way, including titles like Pirates and Railroad Tycoon, which were popular series in their own right, but also overlooked projects that started strong but fizzled early, because sometimes it takes a misstep to figure out where you should be headed. Each game taught me something. Each game was both painful and gratifying in its own way, and each game contributed to what came after it. What follows is a largely chronological examination of all the games I've produced over my lifetime, from the wildly successful to the completely unheard of. Whether they took a billion lines of code or less than a hundred, there is one thing every game in this book has in common. They are fundamentally comprised as all games are, of a series of interesting decisions. We are surrounded by decisions, and therefore games, in everything we do. Interesting might be subject to personal taste, to some degree, but the gift of agency, that is, the ability of players to exert free will over their surroundings rather than obediently following a narrative, is what sets games apart from other media. Without a player's input, there can be no game. I'm often asked in interviews when I got interested in games, usually with the implied hope that I'll identify a moment in my childhood when I suddenly knew I was a game designer. But from my perspective, there was no turning point. I never made the conscious decision to embrace gaming, because as far as I can tell, gaming already is the default, straightforward path. Not only does it span a billion hours of history, ancient Sumerians were throwing dice as early as 5000 BC, and cruder games almost certainly go back as far as the Neanderthals, but it's a deeply embedded human instinct. Everyone starts out life as a gamer, and I was no different. First I laughed at Peekaboo, then I lined up toy soldiers, then I played board games, then I made fun computer programs. To me, it seems like the most logical progression in the world. The question, when did you start, would be better framed as, why didn't you stop? But even then, I don't have a good answer. I find it mind-boggling that a life spent dedicated to gaming is the exception rather than the rule. If my gravestone reads, Sid Meier, creator of Civilization, and nothing else, I'll be fine with that. It's a good game to be known for. And I'm proud of the positive impact it's had on so many players' lives. 
but it won't be the whole story. This is the whole story. That was an excerpt from the book that I'm going to talk to you about today, which is Sid Meier's memoir by the creator of Civilization, A Life in Computer Games, and it was written by Sid Meier. And this is another example of a book that I would have never found if it wasn't for you guys. Uh, this actually uh, was a recommendation from a misfit named R. Nate Lockwood. And it was absolutely fantastic read. I'm going to read the back because I think there's a blurb that gives you a good insight into what you might get out of reading this book. It says, if you ever wish you could stay up all night and hear the most amazing stories from one of the most creative people, Sid's memoir is for you. This book is full of incredible tech technology history and deep insights into what it takes to make a world-class game. But most of all, I loved getting inside Sid's brain and seeing things from his inventive and wise point of view. And that's what I feel like when I get to the end of the book. Okay, I just had this one-sided conversation with this gifted person. Uh, you know, that the conversation probably took 10 or 15 hours where he's just distilling all the main lessons that he learned in his multiple decade career. Let me read the inside flap because this way, when I when I um, got the recommendation, I checked out the, the product page on Amazon. Uh, this is what really drew me to it. It says, over his four decade career, Sid Meier has produced some of the world's most popular video games, including Sid Meier's Civilization, which this is what blew my mind, which has sold more than 51 million units and accumulated more than a billion hours of play. We know that number is way, way higher than that. Sid Meier's memoir is the story of an obsessive young computer enthusiast who helped launch a multi-billion dollar industry. They consider him, he's called the godfather of computing gaming. Uh, writing with warmth and ironic humor, Meyer describes the genesis of his influential studio, his company that he founded was Microprose, uh, which was founded in 1982 after a trip. Imagine making, this is another thing that's going to blow your mind about this, this book, making computer games in 1982. It's just bananas. Uh, founded in 1982 after a trip to a Las Vegas arcade and recounts the development of landmark games from vintage classics like Pirates and Railroad Tycoon to Civilization and Beyond. Articulating his philosophy that a video game should be a series of interesting decisions, which he was just echoing, or I guess uh, introducing rather, in the introduction, this idea that that's what he defines the game as. It's a series of interesting decisions and how he thinks that there's a lot of uh, lessons that you learn from games that you can apply to life. Um, and none of that to, to company building. Uh, if, uh, I was listening to the founder of Shopify, uh, Toby Luque, talk, and he says uh, he learned more. He he learned uh, how to build companies by playing StarCraft. On how to uh, essentially, it's a, a game about resource allocation. Is is his description of it. Uh, so it says, Meyer also shares his perspective on the history of the industry, the psychology of gamers, fascinating insights into the creative process, and including his rules of good game design. Okay, so let's start out in 1982. He is 28 at the time. He's working as a system analyst. And the, the, the really in interesting part about this whole section is the fact that when he starts out designing games, he's just designing them for fun, and then eventually realizes, hey, I, I would love to make a living at this. There was no such thing as a retail computer game when Sid started. So he's at the very, very beginning of this industry. And he says, I was not, I'm not a fan of viewing the past as some inevitable march to destiny. At the time, it didn't feel that way at all. So now he's, you know, he's writing this book as a man in his 60s, looking back at the mindset he had when he was in his late 20s, when he stumbled upon what what was going to be his life's work and his, his greatest passion. She says, I began my career as a systems analyst, installing networked cash register systems in retail stores. Working with computers was, a satisfy was satisfying, and I was grateful to have what amounted to a very good job for a recent graduate. Uh, that's another thing that uh, Sid's writing. First of all, it's really fun to read the book. He applies like this game designer philosophy in, in reading, so it's very simple. To, uh, it speeds along really rapidly. Uh, he has all these fun things where it's like, oh, achievement unlocked, you get to certain parts of the book. 
But what I liked about Sid is he's got an, uh, a completely optimistic uh, perspective on life. And I think a lot of his, his optimism is, is rooted in, in gratitude. Even before he was, which he, he calls being a game designer, the best job in the world. And even before he had the be- what he called the best job in the world, he's like, listen, I just love computers. I was glad to do anything. You know, maybe he wasn't very interested. Listen to his description. I was installing networked cash register systems in retail stores. Probably not passionate about that, but hey, I'm thankful. I have a job working on computers and able to pay my bills. And so I, I think that's a, a lesson that we, we learned right from the very first chapter, the, the importance of gratitude and how pers- you can change your perspective on how you look at things. And thus you can change on your enjoyment or your misery that you get out of life. I wasn't desperate to unleash my creativity on the world or even thinking very hard about the future of the industry. At best, you could call it a state of ignorant bliss. There was no such thing as a retail computer game. Only free bits of code passed between hobbyists. So it would have been difficult for me to harbor secret dreams of becoming a professional computer game designer. There was no such thing at that point. And so he gets into, okay, well, how did I how did I wind up becoming a game designer? So he's working for this company called General Instrument. They're having like this uh, this like company wide, I guess, get together or seminar uh, in Las Vegas. And so this is a pretty big company. He's sitting down, I think they're at a bar some, of some sort, and this guy he doesn't know, he, vaguely kind of familiar to him, but they don't work, they work for the same company, but they don't work in the same department, and this is going to be his future co-founder. And so the note I left myself on this page is meeting the perfect co-founder. And I think that's another main lesson in the book, because Bill, which is going to be his co-founder, is this super aggressive uh, former Air Force pilot, like uh, master salesman, and Sid is an introvert. Uh, he's an introvert that likes people, but he prefers, you know, just he likes to he likes working with computers. He likes working alone. He will be making the you don't have to motivate him to to, to make the game. So he'll do that on his own. But as far as selling the games, this is where Bill, they just they go together like chocolate and peanut butter. So it says Bill was a reserve Air Force pilot who had fought his way into the program despite wearing glasses. And he was proud of his training that he he was so proud of his training that he printed fighter pilot supreme on his business cards. This guy is a wild dude. Uh, so he talks about they're just they're just kind of making small talk from two pe- people that don't really know each other. I managed to offer up the fact that I've been programming an airplane game in my spare time. Bill had said he recently purchased an Atari 800 home computer. He had gotten it to play a new game called Star Raiders. And then he says a very important sentence in the life of Sid Meier. I really want to get into selling games, he said. This is the future. Remember, it's 1982. I told him that I actually just sold my first game to a small publisher named Acorn Software. He, again, he didn't. He was just doing this for fun. With doing it on the side, did not think of it as a career. Oh, suddenly Bill looked very keen. We should start a business. So they wind up going around. They're talking the whole night. They go to an arcade, and Bill's like, "You know, I'm a I'm a pilot." They're uh, they wind up playing a uh, a World War One flight simulator. The, the game is called Red Baron. So Bill goes first. He's like, "Look how good I am!" And then Sid gets on and kind of kicks Bill's ass. So it says, "This was my turn to play." Uh, then then it was my turn to play. How did you do that? Bill sputtered, staring wide eyed at a final score that was roughly double his own. I'm an actual pilot. How could you have possibly beaten me? I shrugged. While you were playing, I memorized the algorithms. You did what? I'm a programmer, I reminded him. The AI of the enemy planes is very predictable. I could design a better game in two weeks. Then do it, he insisted. If you can do it, I can sell it. And there's that one sentence completely summarizes their partnership in the very beginning of their business, which is going to be a wildly successful business. If you can do it, I can sell it. And so we began. At the time, it felt more like a fun project. Remember, he started out the section saying, I don't believe you know, in 
and viewing the past as some inevitable march to destiny. His whole thing is that I, one, I learned something. It led me to a next experience. I learned something else. I just kept building it over for an extremely long career. Um, and in the introduction, he talks about that. You know, every game that I made influenced the next game I made. So he sees series sees his career as a series of not only interesting experiences, but interesting decisions and taking what he learned and applying it to the next project. I think it's like a, a huge part that he's trying to convey to the reader in this book. Uh, so he says, at the time, it felt just like a fun project, but not any sort of life-changing decision. Uh, the note I left myself, I should have read to you earlier, a life-changing moment that doesn't feel that way at the time. Uh, the big moments rarely do, I think. And the dangers of retroactive uh, retroactive mythologizing is what makes it... Oh, this is so important. I underlined this twice, what he's about to say here. All right, so he says, uh, the big moments rarely feel like life-changing at the time, okay? And the danger of retroactive mythologizing is that it makes people want to hold out for something dramatic, rather than throwing themselves into every opportunity. So that is what Sid did. He threw himself into every opportunity. Again, what he wound up dedicating his career to didn't even exist when he was a kid, when you might, when he was in college, when you're thinking about, hey, what do you want to do with my life? He just trusted the fact that, hey, if I could throw myself into every opportunity, I'm a lifelong learner. He talks about that over and over again. And then just trust that all that the path will reveal itself. The reality is I've been fiddling around with game programming for years by then. And then I double underline this next sentence. The first step is almost always to sit down and start working. And so now he goes into the process. Of, okay, well, I just said I could do a better game. Uh, Bill held me to it, said, hey, okay, you do it. I'll sell it. And then he talks about really like thinking of himself as he was extremely, it's extremely important to him to build great, to do great work, to build, in, to use Steve Jobs' word, insanely great products. And so he's looking at all the other uh, fighter like simulation fighter pilot games at the time. And he says there's a pretty big gulf between better and best. Remember, he says I could design a better game in two weeks, right? There's a gulf between better and best. And I always wanted to be on the far side of it. He wanted to make the very best games, not only for his own personal, uh, his own professional pride, but he wanted other people to think, to, to, say, hey, Sid's games are fantastic. And that's another thing. This is going to be, it's going to blow your mind because I didn't, um, Robin Williams is going to make a, a, a cameo in this book. Uh, but all of Sid's games, almost all of them, are they, they start with his name. So his name, he talks about the difference between, hey, I'm Sid Meier as a person, but then there's Sid Meier as a brand. Um, and so what, hap- what, what winds up happening is he creates such great games. They start putting his name on all the games. So people know, oh, wait, I played Pirates. I like that. I'll play Civilization or I'll play this game. Um, and so not only, again, he, has, he wants professional pride, to be his work to be admired, other people, his peers and everybody else say, hey, he's really good at what he does. But then it becomes almost like an obligation because all the games start with his name. So it has to have a certain level of quality. When I finally decided the game was ready as it could be, I handed it over to Bill. And this is an important part too. And a day later, he returned it to me with a list of bugs and military inaccuracies. That was when I knew that this partnership could really go somewhere. What an interesting surprise, right? Some people don't like criticism. We just saw... It was at the last episode, two episodes ago. I can't remember the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger um, uh, uh, autobiography, like the, that covers the first thirty years of his life, where he's like, "No, no, you want to know your weaknesses." Where he he went so extreme, he hired a professional photographer to take pictures of him every month, and then looked at the pictures with a magnifying glass to find any imperfections. That is very similar mindset that Sid has. In fact, when he talks about the people that he worked best with, where the people even later on. 
He talks about, hey, you know, I, I became super famous in this industry. It was hard to find people to give me honest feedback. They're like, hey, you're great. But, but, but essentially he's saying, you know, you got to be wary of having a bunch of yes men, right? Uh, that he's mentoring all these people. They're supposed to be helping him with the quality of the game. But they kind of like idolize him where he works best with people that give him honest feedback. They're not trying to hurt his feelings. They're just saying, hey, this could be better. And so you can think about that the same way that Arnold says, hey, constantly identify your weaknesses and improve them. And so that's what Bill's doing here at the very, very they don't even have a company yet. This is the very beginning. Uh, that was when I knew the partnership could really go somewhere. Bill wasn't looking to make a quick buck on something he didn't understand. He was as invested in the game quality as I was. And this is the beginning. So with $1,500 in savings, we bought a stack of floppy disks, a package of label stickers, and a box of plastic baggies to put them in. That's how you sold games at this time. This was standard packaging back then, even for, for professional releases. No one would have thought to waste an entire cardboard box on just a disc and a half sheet of instructions. So there is a lot of similarities. And the reason I wanted to read this book too is because I love video games. I love them so much that I have to stay away from them because I have an addictive personality and I want to direct all my addictive personality to reading and making podcasts right now. And I know I am again invested in games. I just, I, they, they, I've been playing video games since I was like a, a tiny kid, a little kid. Um, so right now I was like, I, they're too addicting. They're too good right now. I have to stay away from them. But the reason uh, I was excited to read this book too, and, and, uh, apart from my own personal interest, is one of my favorite books that I've read for the podcast. If you want to think about like what uh, book I've stolen so many ideas from, uh, it's Masters of Doom. It's about John Romero and John Carmack. It's Founders Number uh, 21. If you haven't gone back and uh, not only read the book because it's fantastic, but listen to that podcast as well. And it's all about like they start out making their indie game developers very much like Sid. And in that book, what blew my mind is what he's talking about here. What what Sid's talking about here. It's uh, in Masters of Doom. It's called Ziploc Bag Distribution. And here's a line from Masters of Doom about that. It says, Ken and Roberta Williams, this blew my mind when I read this. And I read the book in, what, two or three years, and I never forgot it. It said, Ken and Roberta Williams, a uh, young married couple in Northern California, pioneered the Ziploc distribution method, turning their homemade graphical role-playing games into a $10 million a year company, which they called Sierra Online. So exactly what Ken and Roberta Williams were doing, what John uh, John Carmack and John Romero were doing, is exactly what Sid's doing here. It's like, hey, I, built, I, I made a game. You had physical copies of the game in a floppy disk. I put them in a, <laughs> a Ziploc bag, and that's how I sell it to you. And I think not only is this book an example of that, but especially Masters of Doom, I think every entrepreneur should or anybody that wants to do something creative or interesting should read that book because there's tons of ideas that they wind up using that are like i'm taking some of their ideas that that, from video games and trying to apply to podcasts for example um they just have a lot it's very very interesting the like trial and error and the way they took ideas from different industries because even doom for example right uh, there was an industry called shareware where people would would, would uh, essentially send, uh, release games for free, right? And this is most, not games, sorry. Let me back up. I'm not being clear. Shareware started out as like business applications for free. Try it, download it. If you like it, send me a check. And they tried to do, they tried to take that idea for games. People would download the game and not send any money. And then they start altering that idea to the point where they would release, like in, Do- in, in Doom's case, the one of the most famous video games ever, 
they built it themselves with a relatively small team. They released it for free online. Said, "Hey, you can play the first 15, uh, 15 levels. If you want the next, let's say, forty-five levels or thirty levels, or whatever it is, this is how you, you know send us money, and you can download the rest." Or uh, I can't. I think it was a download. I can't remember if it was download or extra disc. But anyways, uh, less than like I want to say one percent, two percent, something like that. Some number like that actually of the people that play the game wind up buying the rest of the levels and these guys were in their early 20s at the time and doom was bringing in a hundred thousand dollars a day after the release and they were i don't think they had very very limited expenses because they all lived in a house together if i remember correctly remember uh you know i'm going off memory from several years ago but they all lived in a house and i think there was like six people in the entire company um, so again, we see this on a different level, a much smaller level, uh, with Sid's first game in 1982. Now he's eventually going to build large games, but he says even towards the end of the book that he's at, at his heart and soul, he still considers he still prefers indie development. But Civilization, that 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 multiple part, you know, 20, 25, 30 year uh, game that they kept adding uh, different, uh, kept extending rather. Uh, you know, that's he says there might be a, he's like it might not even be an exaggeration. There might be a billion lines of code in there. Like it's a it's a massive. Uh, it would tur- it winds up turning into a massive endeavor with all kinds of programmers and designers and everything else um, because of the popularity. But he does have like a soul of an indie developer. And at the very beginning, they're very happy just to st- to sell a couple hundred games a month, which is what the next section I'm going to read to. You. Uh, in the beginning, the sales calls bills made were based mostly on convenience. If he had a business trip out of town, he'd walk from the train to the nearest computer store and try to sell a few copies. On weekends, he'd load a box of this. I love this level of entrepreneurship. The fact that they're selling their product out of the trunk of their car. Um, there's a line, there's a song by Nas uh, where he talks about this. There's a lot of, there was a lot of independent musicians and independent rappers, especially and it's not just for in hip hop; it's all different genres, especially in the South, like Tennessee and everywhere else, where they would sell their music out of the trunk of their car, and then they would take the proceeds and they keep they keep reinvesting in the company, and then eventually they wind up being have mainstream hits. But yet they own all their masters; they own their entire music, which is extremely rare. It was extremely rare back then; it's becoming more uh, common now. Um, but I just love that level of entrepreneurship. That, hey, I'm going to start out. I have something people want. They're not quitting their jobs. We see this a nighttime and a weekend hustle. And they're like, I'm just going to sell the back of the trunk of my car. Uh, so he says, uh, on weekends, he'd load a box of discs into the trunk of his car and drive as far as he could as he could on I-95, coming back just in time for Monday morning meetings at his day job. Then late one evening, my phone rang. Sid, I think we might be onto something here. Bill, where are you? New Jersey. We just sold 50 copies of Hellcat Ace. Hey, that's great. Yeah, he said. So start copying. And this is what I loved about this book, too. Because Sid is constantly comparing and contrasting the level of technology in his day when he got started comparing to now. So he literally has to copy them one at a time. Each individual sale back then translated to about 60 seconds of boredom in front of my matched pair of floppy drives, making copies of the game one by one. So eventually they get their game gets enough attention that it started being reviewed in some of these uh, like gaming magazines and publications at the time and bill comes up with a really funny and really effective early sales technique remember they're still this is not really a company they're just selling a couple hundred a month they're just trying to do whatever they can and so this is what bill does as soon as the articles were published bill began placing calls to hobby stores uh, that were farther away than than he could drive hello i'm looking to buy a copy of hellcat ace hmm i don't think we carry that one 
What? He would fume. What kind of computer store are you? Didn't you see the review in Antic or any other magazine? Then he would hang up in a huff, muttering about taking his business elsewhere. A week later, he would call again, pretending to be somebody else. And a third time a week after that. Finally, on the fourth week, he'd use his professional voice. Good afternoon. I'm a representative for Microprose Software, and I'd like to show you our latest. Ga- I'd like to show you our latest game, Hellcat Ace. Spurred by the imaginary demand, they would invite him in. So it's during this year he starts making a several. I think he makes three games during uh, 1982, and during his he starts to release them just like his initial beta testers or just his fellow coworkers. And the important part of this section is that if you have like this small initial success or small initial tra- uh, traction it can really light a fire in you and kind of believe, okay, hey, wait a minute, this actually might be possible. So it says, initially I posted it. I posted the game to only a few interested coworkers. But within a few days, it seemed like everyone had heard of it. The, com- the company network began to drag and small beeps ricocheted throughout the halls as a sort of work abandonment klaxon of shame. Eventually, the drain on productivity became too significant to ignore and I was told to delete the game. My coworkers were understandably disappointed, uh, but I wore that ban with pride. It was an objective measure of how good the game must have been. It did leave me with a problem, however. My appetite for making games was growing stronger. But if I couldn't program in the office anymore, where could I do it? And he had good timing because not only at the same time his appetite for making games is uh, is growing. He gets kicked out of being able to develop in the office. Atari, um, which way back on Founders number 36, uh, Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari and Chuck E. Cheese, and the mentor of Steve Jobs. He actually hired an 18 or 19-year-old Steve Jobs to work at Atari. Uh, his Actually, that, that book that he wrote, the autobiography, is called Finding the Next Steve Jobs. But uh, Atari makes a game. They just released a, uh, a computer, rather, that is made... So you can make games on. So he winds up, Sid winds up buying that and then starts producing uh, a lot of games. He lets his mom play one of these games. And this is something we saw, it was a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago, in that book about the guy that ran MGM, MGM Studios, Louis B. Mayer. I think it was like founders number 173. Uh, In that book, it talks about like the very beginning of the movie industry, how it was just black and white and then no sound. And then they started playing um, movies with sound. And what Louis B. Mayer realized, because he saw the, the reaction of the, the audience, like they would start gasping when they heard sound in a movie theater for the first time. They would cry. They would laugh. In other words, they, the, the movies are now evoking emotion. And so Louis B. Mayer went all in. When the, the other people, the people that are invested in, in, um, in silent movies, I forgot the, the actual term for them, but the people that were, that were producing the movies that, that didn't have sound in them were like, oh, no, this is, the sound is just a fad. Don't worry about it. And Louis like, no, no, no. I'm going all in on this because... The fact that the our customers are now crying and laughing, if you have a product that evokes emotion, those products win, right? And Louis understood that you know 100, 100 years ago, and so we see the same thing. We see Sid's coming to the same realization here, because his mom's flipping out at this game. She's not even a gamer. She starts playing this game, and she's getting so tense because suddenly she dropped the controller and turned her face away. She told me she couldn't play anymore. Her heart was racing, and it was all too much. I never forgot that moment. My mother had become emotionally invested in this little game so profoundly that she had to abandon it, abandon it entirely. Games were not just a diversion, I realized. Games could make you feel. If, and I love how he compares gaming to other things like movies and novels and everything else. 
And so he says, if great literature could wield its power through nothing but black squiggles on a page, how much more could be done with movement, sound, and color? The potential for emotional interaction through this medium struck me as both fascinating and enticing. But then he's talking about this. So like, oh, I, I want to do this, but where are the people who got paid for making games? Could I be one of those people? I knew by now that I was a person who could make games, probably for the rest of my life. But it never occurred to me that it could be a source of income. If that were true, then being a game designer seemed like the ideal job. And so he still talks about the fact that, you know, when he's invited to give talks, you know, people always want to talk to, about the past. And he's very thankful for that. But he's like, I still make games today. And it's like, I'm going to do this till I die. Um, and so he, it's, he talks about the difficulty of, you know, I'll never top civilization. You know, I'm not going to sell 50 million copies of whatever game I'm doing now, but I do still like to do this. Um, and I would like your attention on that. <laughs> so I, I thought that was interesting that he brings that up. I was neither a boisterous salesman nor a self-promoter. And though I knew it was counter, even though I knew that was counterproductive to my own goals. So another way you can think about that sentence he just said, he's identifying his weaknesses, right? So it's like, okay, I'm not boisterous salesman. I'm not a self-promoter. I'm kind of the guy in the background. Just I'm the craftsman in the background, right? I had useful knowledge that others didn't have. And I would have to rely on those who had knowledge of my knowledge, who could be my link to the non-programming world. People like my future partner, Bill. And again, I just, I know I repeated that. I think it's very important to identify the weaknesses. And then, hey, if I can't strengthen those weaknesses, find people that already have that, that, that your weakness is their strength. Bill is going to sell. He's a master salesman. Sid is not. Let me just team up with this guy and we can actually build a company together. I'm fast forwarding in this in the story. But again, I want to hit on this part that small initial success can cause you to believe it is possible. You can't accomplish anything until you actually think it's possible. That's the first step. And so the fact that he's having these people are playing his games, his mom's freaking out, his coworkers are freaking out, Bill's selling 500 copies a month. He's like, all right, I'm going to do this. Gaming had its hooks embedded in me. I now believed that I could, that I myself could be a game designer. According to my short autobiography at the end of Formula One Racing Manual, this is a book that he did, this enterprising 28-year-old with exactly one professional title under his belt had two dreams in life. So now he's going back as a mid-60s man and looking back what his 28-year-old self uh, wrote in the manual for his first game. One, I want to develop a music composition system, which I eventually did, and it flopped. And number two, the other was to write the ultimate strategy game. That is Civilization. That is the one that sells 51 million copies. Okay, so they have some success selling these games. And it says, Bill and I were almost selling 500 games a month. I had just churned out, churned out my fourth title. The next step, as Bill saw it, was to broaden our audience by porting all of our games onto other systems. Now, at this point, he's going to be working. Well, I don't, I don't need, actually need to run over the point. Let me just read it to you. Uh, though we technically doubled our workforce because they're reporting to other systems, MicroProse was still a nights and weekends operation out of our homes. Now, Bill sees the potential before Sid does. That's very fascinating. And he's also has, uh, I would say Sid's more cautious. Bill's a little wild. Bill decided it was time for him to leave General Instrument and work full-time at MicroProse. There was no realistic way for him to increase his efforts at the company otherwise. But I was more cautious about giving up my steady paycheck and still not convinced that this dream was going to last. Our philosophy had always been to avoid loans and venture capital, and it would, and it would only take a couple months of slow sales to drag us under. I decided it would be more prudent for me to go halftime, spending two days a week at the new MicroProse office space and three days a week at my day job. 
So he finds a way to compromise. I have a safety net, but I can also dedicate more hours of my week to making this company successful. Let me skip ahead to how they wind up. They, they, they wind up analyzing uh, the retail game market, which is starting to grow little by little at this time. And they're like, okay, well, how can we accel- rapidly accelerate sales? Instead of, you know, I'm just, I'm calling up, I'm doing like prank calls to, to, to gaming um, retailers. Uh, I'm selling things out of the trunk of my car. Like, how can we f- speed this up? And so what they realize is like the retail game market at the time, you, you have to put yourself into a spot where a buyer can notice you. And why is that important? Because the buying of new games was outsourced by the retailers. So it says there was no middle ground in the retail market. At the bottom were the mom and pop stores. These are the ones they're calling, trying to you know go to door to door, essentially sell. And directly above them were the national outlets. So that's the ones they're trying to penetrate. Upward mobility came all at once or not at all. And so this is where they come up with a good idea. The national chains didn't decide for themselves what products to carry. Instead, they leased out their shelf space to professional distributors who would sign their own contracts with individual game companies. Like, And he compares this to the music industry, like recording agents looking for the next big act. To get the attention we needed, Bill said we had to get ourselves to CES. This is the Consumer Electronics Show. This is 1984. And he says, you know, it's a, it's a big show, but it's like more than twice as big today. Um, so they wind up setting up a booth with a demo. Uh, a lot of buyers are there. They wind up signing a couple distribution deals. Now, this was actually really, really smart. And I'm surprised. I wouldn't say I'm surprised, but it takes a lot of, um, like, you have to know why you're doing what you're doing to, to, to turn down a deal like this because they don't have a lot of money at this time. So you have distributors that want to say, okay, I'm, you know, for a cut, I'm going to put you in a retail store, right? But then you also have people coming around, other game development companies uh, and some distributors saying, hey, uh, we're not going to do a royalty-based deal with you. Just sell me the entire game, and then I'll recoup it. But any upside, essentially, they're they're saying, I'm going to buy the game, but all the upside is mine. So what Sid and Bill did that was smart is like they always wanted to maintain ownership. And they realized instinctively that it's a good idea not to cap the upside. I mean, imagine him selling the Civilization series. Maybe you sell for a million dollars, you think you're rich, but it goes on to sell 51 million copies and all the upside goes to the person that bought it, right? So he wants to avoid that. Partnership was not the same as ownership. And Bill and I had been clear about staying on our side of the equation. Rather than a stake in the company, or rather than a stake in the company, meaning buy into Micropros, our ongoing royalties, however, there's this company called Heesware. Heesware wanted to pay us a flat $250,000 to buy the game in its entirety and then sell it as their own. On one hand, long-term sales of Solo Flight, that's the game, might surpass Heesware's offer, especially now that we had distributor deals on the table. On the other hand, we were still running on a very tight budget, and with me not even able to work full-time. So he turned down this deal, and he's not even working full-time. This is really, really hard to do, but really smart move. A large injection of cash, because they're going to wind up selling hundreds of thousands of copies. A large injection of cash would help us significantly and keep us afloat if the game turned out to be a bust. But I gave Bill the only advice I had to offer. If this is so important, if you believe you have something special, then you should treat it that way. If you believe you have something special, then you should treat it that way. I heard you shouldn't sell the family jewels, I said. It turned out to be the right decision. And so when I got to that section, there's two examples that one I've already covered on the podcast, one I will cover in the future. Akio Morita, founder of Sony, and Ralph Lauren. Both did the same thing that Sid did here. Kiyomarita 
he's his dream is like I'm gonna build a company that not only is Sony gonna be world renowned, but it's gonna at the time Japan had a um, reputation for making crappy products, and so he put his mission not to make Sony special. Uh, uh, Sony, he picked a mission bigger than his company. So it's not like I don't want to ma- just make Sony successful. I want to make the reputation for Japanese products better. And so he winds up at the t- in the early days of Sony. I forgot what the what what uh what product it was but one of one of the early products he meets with uh, like a large department store they say we love it we'll take a hundred thousand units and Akiyo could not believe it. he's like oh my god millions and millions of dollars that his company did not have but the 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 catch was we're not going to sell it for sony with the sony name we're going to put our name so essentially you're going to be our house brand right and Akio Morito says, no, like I'm not doing that. And then he gets chastised by the buyer. He's like, well, how dare you say no to us? We're a company that's been around for decades. We have a, a well-known brand. You're just a, you know, fly by nothing. And Akio Morito's like, yeah, but I won't be forever. And one day my company will be as well-known as your company. And so he turned down that huge offer. Same thing. Uh, I haven't done the biography of Ralph Lauren yet, but I will in the future. Um, but he, in the very early in his career, he knew he wanted to have the Ralph Lauren brand I think one of the first things he sold was ties. And I, it was like a Bloomingdale's kind of store. And they're like, we love your ties, Ralph. We're going to buy them. Here's the catch. You're going to make them. We're going to put our name on them. And he didn't have a lot of money. He had no, he, there was no Ralph Lauren to speak of. And he said, no, I'm not here to make your brand better. I'm making my brand. And so even when he didn't have money, just like Akia Morita, just like Sid, he turned that down because he knew why he was doing what he was doing. And so this pays off. They wind up selling a, a boatload of solo flight. And it says a few months after signing uh, the solo flight deal, Bill said the words I've been waiting to hear. Sid, we're making enough money. You can quit your day job. Which started out as a labor of love, now finally qualified as a legitimate labor that we all happen to love. Remember, this is something me and you have been talking about over and over again. Find work that feels like play. Work that feels like play. No one can compete with you if you're, what you're doing today feels like play to you and it feels like work to them. And this is the most important part of this entire section, quality, quality content. In this case, his games, quality was the driving force behind it all. A few pages later, this one sentence, there's a one what I call one sentence story. And again, another illustration of that idea, fine work that feels like play. All that mattered to me was that I got to make games for a living. So I want to go back and reference Masters of Doom, podcast number 21. How do you have two partners, a small company making a tons of money? Two partners are running it as John Romero, John Carmack. They wind up breaking up. Why are they breaking up? Because Sid, John Carmack, was very similar to what Sid says here. What did Sid say? All that mattered to me was that I got to make good game, or I got to make games for a living. There's a quote from uh, Masters of Doom that I never forgot. As the car, as Carmack put it, shortly after their breakup, Romero wants an empire. I just want to make good programs because Carmack found work that felt like play i just want to say just wants to make video games carmack just wants to make video games i don't need to have an empire and in, in that case i mean he has almost like the it's almost like you have a mini empire because it's the games are so profitable doom was making so much money it's so in that book is just there's a lot again i, I just highly recommend everybody read that book because there's just a lot of lessons on how to make a product, how to market it. Just There's lessons on distribution, on pricing, but also what happens. We see this over and over again. Having a co-founder is like being married. And most marriages end in divorce. Same thing with co-founders. It's And you see, like, they had an empire and they broke apart. 
Um, so again, if you can read that and kind of learn from their experiences, maybe you can avoid the, those pitfalls in the future. I think that's where the value is. This was something interesting. Reminds me of Claude Hopkins. I think this is founders number 170. I don't have it in front of me. Claude Hopkins may be the greatest copywriter of all time. He wound up uh, working from home uh, just with a typewriter and made like the equivalent of like $4 million a year because his words induced people to buy the products of his clients, right? And one of the um, two things I learned from Claude Hopkins that other pe- he influenced other people like David Ogilvy later on, but the more you tell, the more you sell, right? Um, and number two, start with service. And there's just two quick sentences, and it's about, you really see Sid's love for what he's doing. So it says, one of the things that Microprose was famous was for our game manuals, which over time became as long and informative as textbooks. The manual for the game, he put, the more he sells, the more he tells. He's putting all, all kinds of information that the game, again, most, some people won't read it. Maybe a lot of people won't read it. But the people that do read it will have a fundamentally deeper appreciation for your game. Just like with me. When I, as I started reading these biographies and autobiographies of people, like uh, if their company is still around, I find myself more likely to spend money at their company. I've been ever since I did Trader Joe's. I've always shot the Trader Joe's. But now I don't know if I've been to another uh, grocery store since I've done that book because I'm like, wow, this guy really loved what he did. And reading that book, spending 10 or 15 hours having a one-sided conversation with him, now I'm going to go to Trader Joe's. I'm like, wow, I can really appreciate his philosophy and and all the work. It took him, what, two decades to finally, or a decade and a half, uh, to finally figure out what his company was supposed to be. And so I think what Sid's doing here is really smart. He's like, listen, I'm pouring all these game manuals. Yeah, you might not read it. But what Claude said, the more you tell, the more you sell. And you see this guy clearly cares and then start with service. And he's talking about, you know, people like, why are you doing this? And one sentence here, we just wanted to be helpful. Okay, so I'm fast forwarding the story. Obviously, if you want the whole story, you got to read the book. But um, there is, he, he's making more games and, you know, they're, they're selling very, very well. Says so the game went over to sell over 250,000 copies. I wish we could sell, and I'm going to, he's talking about he had to fix the game uh, in the development process, but I'm going to, what he's saying here is going to sound very similar to what we just learned from Johnny Ive uh, a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago in his, in his biography. I wish I could sum up how we fixed it, but the math is long, complicated, and boring. The important thing to note is that it wasn't one, it wasn't a lightning bolt solution, but dozens of increment, this is so important, not a lightning bolt, dozens of incremental changes, many of which we couldn't take credit for. We had to find ways to do our job better, but we also had to take advantage of other people who were doing their jobs better. New technology, new compression algorithms, new ways to implement standard subroutines. Gaming is a collaborative effort, and it is silly to think that any one person can claim all the glory. And so from the Johnny Ive biography, they talk about innovation a lot. Like, how, how are you making innovative pro- products? And I can't remember if it's a direct quote or if this is the author, but it says innovation, I'm pretty sure it's a direct quote, innovation is rarely about a big idea. More usually... It's a series of small ideas brought together in new and better ways. So let's use that definition of innovation one more time. Innovation is rarely about a big idea. More usually, it's a series of small ideas brought together in new and better way. That is exactly what Sid just said in that paragraph. And the fact that he was able to bring a series of small ideas together in a new and better way winds up leading to one game, and they're making several games, that sold 250,000 copies before the internet. That's insane. Another common theme that we see over and over again in these biographies. You're going to be misunderstood by the outside world. When he starts doing this, gaming, you know, if you say I'm going to be a game designer today, it's like, oh, that makes plenty of, that makes tons of sense. That makes a lot of sense, right? 
massive industry growing rapidly. It's, it's insane. But it says, but at, at Sid's time, it wasn't like that at all. It wasn't that gaming was looked down on by the rest of the world necessarily, but it was sometimes glanced at sideways in confusion. I don't think any of us could have imagined back then the kind of cultural domination that gaming would someday achieve. Okay, so let's go to why he names his games like he does. Even the, So there's the Sid Meier, which is normal, but then this, there's Sid Meier that's italicized with an exclamation point at the end. That's how the, the, the title of this book, the title of all his games. And Robin Williams is why that, <laughs> this is another surprising thing, Robin Williams is why that happened. Why Sid's games started out uh, using his name in the title. Uh, so it says he's at a meeting. There's that some kind of SPA event. I'm not sure what that is. But Bill happens to be there and says Robin Williams pointed. Robin Williams was a he loved games. In fact, he he named one of his daughters Zelda, which I also didn't know that. But Robin Williams pointed out that all other ent- entertainment industries promoted their stars by name. Why should the why should gaming be any different? So he says, hey, you know it's a Robin Williams movie. You know it's a Stephen King novel. Why don't I know it's a Sid Meier game? Um, and, and so Sid, Sid was a little reluctant to do that. But then he says, Robin Williams told me to do it. It's a pretty good defense for almost anything. So I thought that was really interesting. And then he talks about, you know, the, re, the beginning of industry is not like a lot. There's not like best practices. And so how do I make these decisions? And this is something we've seen over and over again. Let's just start with the customer work backwards. All I could, was, all I could do is keep asking myself, would I want to play this game? As long as the answer was yes, the idea stayed in. He always put himself in the role of his customer, in the role of the player. Not just saying, hey, I can design a game because it's easier for me. No, would the, would the customer, would the player actually like what I'm doing? So one of his uh, most popular games was uh, Sid Meier's Pirates. And I'm just going to read. Uh, I'm going to skip over all the development. I just want to hit some, um, like, what he realized, his, like, his key insight. And what I wrote, the note I left myself on this page is, holy shit, this applies for real life, not just the design of a pirate game. A pirate's career would last about 40 years between childhood and old age, just like ours, right? And his goal, this is so important, and his goal was to accomplish as much as he could in that window, to have an adventurous life with no regrets. Let's go back to that. And we're going to substitute pirate's career, your career. Your career will last about 40 years between childhood and old age. And your goal was to accomplish as much as you could in that window. To have an adventurous life with no regrets. As in real life, success could only be measured as a combination of your exploits and how much value you put on those particular exploits yourself. Inner scorecard. Idea you and I have talked about over and over again. Life is not a steady progression of objectively increasing value. And when you fail, you don't just reload the mission again. You knock the wet sand off your breaches and return to the high seas for new adventures. And if you happen to get marooned on a desert island a few times, well, that makes for a good story too. And I just love that. We can summarize that whole section there. Have an adventurous life with no regrets. So now they're, they're having success. We're in the eight, late 80s. And um, Tom Clancy, uh, the very successful writer, winds up they uh, um, Sid winds up doing an adaptation of the hunt for Red October it was either the hunt for Red October or Red Storm Rising uh, nope Red Storm Rising is the, it was a submarine simulation they were building uh, so this was really uh, I, I wrote oh this is never as surprising as it should be and then a quote from Jay-Z I'll tell you about it in a minute it says Tom Clancy was a very down-to-earth guy the hunt for Red October had been a huge success 
but as a debut author, he hadn't been able to command the greatest deal with his publisher, and he was still working at his day job selling insurance, even as Red Storm Rising was flying off the shelves. Okay, so let me unpack that a little bit. Tom sold his first book, The Hunt for Red October, which is a hugely successful novel, turned into a movie, turned into all kinds of stuff. He sold it for $5,000. So that's what I mean. Oh, this should never be as surprising as it should be. He eventually makes more, but he winds up selling 100 million books before he dies. And he dies in like his 60s. 100 million books, Tom Clancy. It's wild. But at this point, it's selling. He's got to go back and, and renegotiate and get more money for him. But he's still having to sell insurance. How crazy is that? He's got two wildly successful books, and he's still having to work a day job. And so when I got to that section, I thought of this uh, this quote from Jay-Z. I've told you about this album before, his his album 444. It's, yeah, it's about his life, but really it's a it's an album about entrepreneurship. And you have a hugely successful person that came from the projects, Marcy Projects, and winds up, I think he's like a billionaire today, has success, been successful in so many different domains. And even there, he talks about, he's like, uh, there's a line in, 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 uh, on the album where he's talking about, uh, you can think it's bougie, it's fine, but I'm just trying to give you a million dollars worth of game for $9.99. He's talking about, you know, why are you rapping about investments? Why are you rapping about collecting art? Why are you rapping about building companies? And his whole point is just like, you, in the reference there is, you know, CDs, albums used to call nine before we streamed, they, you know, you usually buy them for $9.99. So he's like, I'm for $10, for buying this album for $10, if you actually listen to what I'm saying, it's going to be worth over a million dollars to you in your life. A million dollars worth of game for nine ninety nine. But on in that um, album, it's something he's he's renowned for, and he was decades, decades ahead of this. Is over and over again, you see executives, record companies, take advantage of the the people that are actually producing the work, right? Making the album, making the music, whatever the case is. Uh, in that t- case, he talks about how Prince, the the famous uh, the famous music artist. You know, they they made they stole his masters. Uh, somebody I forgot who he referenced in the album. He's, they wind up after Prince died, they sold tickets so you could walk through his house, and he calls them greedy bastards in there. And the reason I say Jay Z's uh, way ahead of that is because no one would sign him when he was twenty six years old, twenty six years old back in the nineties, and so he just signed himself. He's like, okay, well, I'll just make my own record label. And that was very, very, like, it was almost unheard of back then. Now you're seeing a lot. There's actually a lot that I think modern-day entrepreneurs can learn from from independent music music artists now. And I've mentioned this a few times on the podcast. But if you actually study them and listen to what they're saying, like, they maintain ownership. They wind up using the latest technology. They're making tons of money, and they're not getting taken advantage of. There are still people getting taken advantage of. So when I got to this Tom Clancy part, where it's like, you know, Tom is a very – very successful, but he's still having to work insurance. And there's a line on that album where Jay-Z says, y'all are still signing deals? Still. After all they done stole. For real. And his point is like, you're, I understand you're young and you want to break it into the music industry, but you're ignoring decades of history, of very important history in the music industry of how they're ripping you off over and over and over again. He talks about, okay, we'll talk when you're behind in your taxes. And again, I think like that's the, the, the why... I think musicians especially, they, they, they are the most efficient storytellers in the world because in a few minutes or sometimes in a line or two, they can just tell entire stories where it's like you're still signing deals, still, after all they done stole for real. Now, in, in Tom Clancy's case, winds up working out, but that's only because he was able to keep producing best-selling novels. So just this idea that you're going to sell The Hunt for Red October for $5,000. And then it might also be obvious when we got to that part. Like that is also something that Sid avoided 
and he was offered he was offered a lot more than five thousand dollars. They were going to give him a quarter million dollars for one game, and he was able to make multiple games in a year. He's like, no, I'm capturing the upside. All right, so he talks about uh, sitting down and um, made, essentially made. They're going to have a conversation. Him and uh, I, I skipped ahead, but they're they built a friendship of some sorts, or at least a relationship. And really, the the whole summary of the section, this conversation that Tom Clancy and Sid Meier are about to have, is maintain control so you can avoid shady business deals. Business is full of shady, scummy, terrible people. I always think uh, the best way to describe this is when uh, it's a quote from Charlie Munger. He says, "Wise people want to avoid other people who are just total rat poison, and there are a lot of them. So business is full of them." One way to avoid people taking advantage of you is to maintain control. It says, that night we sat up late together, expounding on the nature of art, sources of inspiration. Remember, he's a writer. Clancy's uh, a writer. And in some in some ways, Sid is as well. Sources of inspiration and the inevitable connection we develop with our creations. He revealed that in the intervening months, he had been kind to him, that the intervening months had been kind to him financially, but not so kind emotionally, as he was forced to adapt to fame and the complications that come along with it. Tom was especially troubled by ongoing contractual issues with his first book and the fear that he might never again own the rights to his own character. Again, this is what Sid avoided, right? And later on, when he says making civilization, I skipped over a lot of this part, but there's a lot of weird... Other people buy Sid's creations too because it's owned under a corporate umbrella. It's really, really confusing. There's more details in the book, but he does eventually get back all control. Uh, the conversation was eye-opening for me, first in discovering a kindred creative spirit underneath that alpha male persona that Tom Clancy had, and also in the revelation that even someone of his stature could be taken advantage of through poor business arrangements. So they took advantage of Tom Clancy when he's super famous, took advantage of Prince, the history of business, especially in, in the entertainment industry, is people being taken advantage of. I'd always had a distaste for business deals in general, simply because it's not the kind of thing I want to spend my day doing. And I was starting to realize that there was potential danger in them as well. And I think that's another thing about Sid that you see if you read the book over and over again. He's smart enough to learn from the experience of others. It's like, all right, I don't, I'm going to avoid time. I don't want to have to just learn through my own experience, right? That's, that's too expensive. I'm going to learn from other people's experiences. This conversation I have with Tom, I'm not going to forget it. Make sure I don't get taken advantage of like this. I'm going to bring you up to state of the business in 1990. As a company, we're now releasing three or four games a year and generating around $15 million in revenue. So over and over again in the book, Sid talks about being inspired by the success and the, the work of others. He'll quote uh, authors, musicians, fellow game designers. And this is an example of SimCity. This is a game I played when I was a kid. I love this game. Uh, it was actually SimCity was the inspiration behind uh, uh, Sid's game Railroad Tycoon, which winds up being one of his most successful games ever. And and, and the Railroad Tycoon title inspired like all kinds of, uh, like there was like a whole genre of tycoon. You know, you could build all kinds of things that weren't, they were not made by Sid, but they were inspired by, in turn, inspired by Sid. So it said, fellow designer Will Wright released his magnum opus, SimCity. The idea had come to him while working on a different title, after he realized that he enjoyed designing the levels more than bombing them. Not entirely surprising for a game designer to feel that way, but he came to the radical conclusion that others might agree with him. Will had spent years trying to convince publishers that his city-building simulator, this is the problem with gatekeepers, look at this. He spent years trying to convince publishers that his city-building simulator was, was a game at all, until finally he and a partner formed their own company to release it themselves in February 1989. Uh, so he said, SimCity was either the kick I needed to see what was right in front of me, or else maybe the reassurance that my intuition was feasible after all. And from then on, I knew this wasn't a distracting little side project. 
we were making a railroad game. So instead of the idea that you have to kill people, something Sid, I don't think Sid has any violence, violence in his games. It's like one of his philosophies. Uh, you have to blow things up or, or he's like, no, why don't people just might be interested in just constantly building and making progress. And so what he's learning on rail, from SimCity on Railroad Tycoon, he then will also apply to civilization, this idea of just perpetual progress and not just the destruction of things. And before I get into this conversation where they realize, okay, now is the time to build civilization, one, one sentence for you. Never forget the why. Never forget why people are using your product. People play games to feel good about themselves. So that I just listened to a talk that Sid did like six years ago. In about an hour and a half, he lays out all his gaming philosophy. It's on YouTube if you want to watch it. Um, he talks about it over and over again. Like People play games to feel good about themselves. So don't make dec- decisions as a game designer that go against why, you're, why they're playing your particular game. So this is where he realizes it's time for civilization. That was a pretty fun game to make, Bruce said. It was, I agreed. We should do another one. Something bigger. What's bigger than the history of railroads? The entire history of human civilization. We laughed at the absurd truth of that statement. But as soon as it was said out loud, I don't think either of us could have settled for anything less. We were not the type to turn down an interesting challenge. At the age of 28, I had declared in my very first instruction manual that I would one day write the ultimate strategy game. Now, at 36, I figured I was ready. Age and experience may bring wisdom, but sometimes it's useful to be a young person who hasn't learned how to doubt himself yet. So you have an idea as why he's saying that. Age and experience may bring wisdom. Sometimes it's useful. However, sometimes it's useful for a young person who hasn't learned how to doubt himself yet. He did not know how hard (laughs) making civilization was going to be. And he's going to wind up putting everything into it. And it's fantastic that it was, it was uh, successful. But it burns him out for an extremely long period of time. And again, I just think that's something that's mentioned over and over again. Where people are looking back, like, hey, if I knew how hard that was going to be, I would have had to, when I started it, I wouldn't have done it. So there is some kind of benefit to, to ignorant bliss or naivete, whatever you want to call it. Uh, this is Sid really saying you, you need to know your edge. We simply can't compete with the panorama of a movie are the length of a novel, are the acoustics of an album. And prioritizing these features over gameplay, which is his edge, will always lead to disappointments. The time has come for us to outgrow Hollywood envy. He's, he's, I think there's another game designer or game publisher. Uh, it says, as Chris Crawford once wrote, the time has come for us to outgrow Hollywood envy. Sid Meier makes a pathetic Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he makes a magnificent Sid Meier. Okay, so I'm pull out a couple more interesting things about while he's making games. In one game, he winds up making like a has one game but has multiple games inside the game. And what he realizes, like the, the, the really where I'm bringing this this paragraph to your attention, is because it reminds me a lot of Steve Jobs. Steve, one of his greatest philosophies is the fact that the further you get away from one, the more complexity you're inviting in. And then his other another thing it reminded me of Steve Jobs says that focus is saying no. Right? So it says, combining two great games had somehow left me with zero good ones. The notion that one good game is better than two great games was such a revelation that it became known in my mind as the covert action rule. That's the game he was making that he learned this. Many of the designers I mentor now weren't even born when that game came out. So we're more likely to talk about it, uh, talk about the issue in terms of where a game's center of gravity is. But the lesson holds. And I've never stopped citing the truth of it to myself or others. If anything, it's grown in revel- re- relevance since back then when we at least had limited computing resources to restrain us. These days, the easiest thing in the world to do is more. 
And if we're not careful, we can end up with three or four games all jammed into one. Deciding what doesn't go into the game is sometimes more important than deciding what does. And then he's got some advice on how to make progress faster. It's like a series of iterations. Don't just essentially sit around and overthink things. Just make a demo, see how it goes, and if it doesn't work back, roll it back. Um, so he also has this idea. It's like you need to double what you're doing or cut it in half. So let me just read this to you and hopefully it makes sense. Mistakes are a given, and the important thing is to catch as many as you can, as fast as you can. Ideally, you'll reevaluate your creation every single day. And each iteration is an opportunity not to pat yourself on the back, but to figure out where you've already gone wrong. Efficiency is the goal. And one of my big rules has always been double it or cut it in half. Don't waste your time adjusting something by 5%, then another 5%, then another 5%. Just double it and see if it even had the effect you thought it was going to have. You just saved yourself a dozen iterations inching up 5% at a time. Less than a month before, and then, the, uh, then you can move in the, uh, the other direction too. Less than a month before Civilization was published, I cut the size of the map in half. It turned out that the size wasn't as important as the sense of relentless progress. With a smaller map, the game moved faster. And that in turn made the map feel more epic than when it was twice as big. The point is, there are bad things in my games, at least until I manage to pin them down. But I don't let the possibility of mistakes hold me back. I won't ponder for hours whether a feature would be a good idea. I just throw it in the game and find out for sure. If it's clunky, I cut it back out again. There is no map before you've explored the wilderness and no overriding artistic vision on day one. There's just the hard, consistent work of making something a little better each day and being as efficient as possible in your discovery of what it's going to turn out to be. So after a lot of time and effort, he winds up finishing Civilization. And conventional wisdom winds up being wrong again. Civilization starts resonating with players. So it says, conventional wisdom said a strategy title would never make big money. So the company even, and I've skipped over a bunch of like the weird people leave, ownership changes, all this other stuff, but they didn't put a lot of marketing dollars at the beginning behind Civilization. Because they said, you know, conventional wisdom says you're not going to make big money. So why would we make a huge investment in marketing? Uh, they hadn't put a big marketing push behind it. So like most of my recent games, it started as a slow burn. Then they realized, okay, we've resonated with something. When the first fan letters trickled in a few weeks after the game's release, they had a decidedly different tone than we were used to. Some of the letters were several pages long and included phone numbers in the hopes that we could discuss things in greater depth. We had gotten players thinking on a deeper level. They were interacting with the game as a tool rather than an experience. And what happens is it's the slow burn, but it starts spreading by word of mouth. So even years later, he's saying this is like two or three years after the game was released, new fans were discovering the game every day. I had poured everything I had into civilization, and I was honestly ready to think about something else for a while. So now he's completely burned out, and it says achievement unlocked. This is the, the, the gamification of the book. It says midlife crisis. Woohoo, we're halfway there. And so he, he, t- he takes a break for a while. He starts working on other um, completely different games. He makes that music composer game he wanted. It winds up flopping. Uh, later on, he says Civilization, the, the, the titles were, there was always different lead designers uh, because you have to, that's, he's like, that's something you have to do when you're young and full of energy because it's just so comprehensive. It's such a large project. Uh, I do want to pull out one sentence here that's Sid, Sid's realization. 
that is going to be something that we've seen over and over again in this book. It says good games don't get made by committee. So good products don't get made by committee. That's something Edwin Land, Steve Jobs, George Lucas, David Ogilvie, Charles Keatering, they are all agreeing with Sid here. That's something that, that pops up over and over again. Good products don't get made by committee. You need that formidable individual that's leading it. Um, so this is interesting. He talks about where he's, he made mistakes. So civilization has this huge modding uh, community that's sustained it for multiple decades. They'll, they'll actually change the game and reskin it and change things about it that that to make it more essentially like customizing it to their own liking right and he thought this was a terrible idea and so one of the um one of the the next civilization designers is actually the one that pushed him in this direction he's like brian you're insane you shouldn't be doing this and then he talks about the the realization he has when he comes when he figures out he was wrong i thought thought it was valuable so i'm going to read the two in a minute brian unlocked the back end even further he made it possible for players to alter graphics, replace sound effects, modify rules, and basically create an entirely new game from themselves around the skeleton of our code. I could not be convinced this was a good idea. This idea of handling everything over to the players was just baffling. They would probably be terrible at it, I thought, and blame us for their uninspired creations. And if by chance they did happen to be good at it, then all we were doing was putting ourselves out of a job. Either way, I knew that modding was a great way to ensure that Civilization never saw a third installment. I was so wrong, on all counts. The strength of the modding community is, instead, the very reason this series survived at all. Our audience had been clamoring to modify the game since the first fan letter. What I didn't see at the time is that imagination never diminishes reality. It only heightens it. So the next two paragraphs, I'm going to read that. I'm going to start that again. The next two paragraphs are really his key insight here, and I think the reason I'm reading this whole section too, because I think it applies to other things. It's very, very wise of him. What I didn't see at the time is that imagination never diminishes reality. It only heightens it. Just like a fantasy can awaken you to new possibilities in the real world, letting the fans play in the sandbox with us only brought them closer to the universe we had created, the one that had made their fantasy possible. I thought they were tearing the house down. When in fact, they were only remodeling because they liked the neighborhood and wanted to stay. Fortunately, Brian had the wisdom to give away the construction materials. To say fans ran with it would be an understatement. So to some degree, he becomes like a, uh, like a, what is it, a prisoner of your own success? And this is, again, we're just going to echo, I ju he just wants to make games. Like, it doesn't have to be complicated, right? But we love to overcomplicate things, just like... John Carmack, just want to make games. I was frustrated. I didn't like doing licenses, and I didn't like the corporate structure that had been slowly but surely building up around me for years. I just wanted to make games. Many other early folks had moved on as well, and it was time for me to do the same. So once a company grows big and unwieldy, it has its like own momentum of itself, he winds up leaving, starting a, a tiny... Uh, I shouldn't say tiny, but it starts out small, but it's going to grow too. Uh, design another, just another design studio where he's like, okay, I'm going to start. It's just going to be us three, and then we'll build up from there. And this is how it tied into his decision about wanting to to go back like to the basics to a smaller team. Is this is Sid describing how he likes to work? Separately is probably how I work best with everyone. I'm an introvert who likes people. I want to collaborate on the whole, but I want to do my part individually. There are so many things in the world to be good at. And I get a thrill every time I come across someone who excels in their field. The dichotomy between someone else's talent and your own is a cause for celebration. Because the further apart you are, the more you can offer each other. The further apart you are, the more you can offer each other. So he's talking about, hey, 
at the beginning, he did everything. He's making the game. He's designing the game. He's doing the audio for the game. Slowly but surely, he's got uh, people say, hey, I can design for you. So he's like, oh, oh I don't know. Maybe can. Then he looks at the designs like, oh, they're better than me. So, okay, I'm going to grab that guy. Uh, I can do audio for you. He does the audio better than me. So I'm going to grab that person. Um, so that's what he's talking about. It's like, yeah, stick to what is your edge and then find the people that can fill in the gaps. Same thing w- with Bill, his first partner. You know, I'm he, Bill can sell. I don't want to sell. So the further apart you are, the more you can offer each other. I know where my own talents are. And I find that sharing those duties usually falls somewhere between inefficient and frustrating. I want to combine other people's unique expertise with mine and create something that none of us could have made alone, not compromise on the same task. Uh, he's going to bring up the idea that you, you, everybody's constantly building on the work of others all the time. Uh, that is not to say my version of civilization had no outside influences. Far from it. Aside from the general creating, not destroying concept I'd first encountered in SimCity, there were two games that I very much respected and blatantly took ideas from to use for my own purposes. So it's a game called Seven Cities of Gold. And it says, the game was a cloud-parting, shackle-removing, mind-blowing masterpiece for me. And there were elements of it in nearly every game I made thereafter. And he's got a great line to summarize this section. The ideas didn't start with us, and they can't end with us either. So he talks about, you know, I was influenced by tons of people. And so when I see somebody doing influence by a game like uh, Pirates or Railroad Tycoon or Civilization... Like, I love that. I love seeing further improvements. The ideas, the ideas didn't start with us, and they can't end with us either. So he's talking about game design in this next section. But I, again, there's so many things where he's talking about game design that I feel applies to real life, too. He's talking about how to, like, the beginning of what do you want your game to be. Let's say, okay, what do you want your life to be? Who's having the most fun? That's who you want your player to be. The person with the most power, living the most exciting life. In the history of civilization, it's the king. On the Spanish main, meaning the pirates, it's the captain of the pirate ship. In war, it's the general. And in the transportation industry, it's the tycoon. So just think about that. Not, not who's your player, not your, like your life, right? Who is having the most fun? That's who you want your player to be. That really echoes an idea from a long time ago when I did that three-part series on Elon Musk. Tim Urban of Wait But Why did an Elon Musk blog series. You can read it for free online by going to his website. But um, I bought the ebook or the Kindle version, rather, and it's like 60,000 pages. But anyways, that whole idea about treating your life as like you're playing a video game, one of the, the metaphors that Tim uses, Tim Urban uses to, to describe Elon Musk's approach to life is grand theft life. Um, that section is worth reading and rereading over and over again because it's very fascinating. So few people use that, that, um, that I guess, metaphor, that philosophy. Uh, this is Sid talking about the, 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 the benefit of being obsessive. I think having a slightly obsessive personality is a useful thing. It keeps me focused on the quality of my work. It provides critical sources of outside inspiration, which often contribute in surprising ways. Whatever it is you want to be good at, you have to make sure you continue to read and learn and seek joy elsewhere because you never know where inspiration will strike. As you can imagine, there's tons of people wanting to break into the industry, young, younger people that ask Sid for advice. So this is his advice on how to get started. The best way to prove your idea is a good one is to prove it, not with words, but with actions. Sit in the programmer chair until you have something playable. Then sit in the artist chair until you have something crudely recognizable. Then sit in the tester chair and be honest with yourself about what's fun and what's not. You don't need to be perfect at any one job. You just need to be good enough to prove your point and inspire others to join you. 
So he talks about the pricing model of games and how it's changed over time. And I think this is really where studying the gaming industry uh, is really beneficial because it's also in, it mentioned a lot in the Masters of Doom book. Um, so he's talking about this is now in like the modern era, right? Uh, we decided whether we had to decide whether to charge a one up a one upfront premium for the game, as was traditional, or try out the trendy new model of downloadable content in which a limited version of the game would be given away for free and then subsequent levels would have to be individually purchased. So a lot of mobile games are using this. Obviously, I mean, computer games are using it, not just mobile games, but he's going to reference a mobile game here. Uh, but this is also the Doom model, the model that they came up with, I think, in the early 90s. If you were asked a group of gamers their opinion on these so-called microtransactions, most would probably respond with a string of rude words. But their revenues tell a different story. Nexon, the company that invented the notion of small purchases within a free game, first used it as a Hail Mary pass for an online server that was about to be shut down for lack of subscribers. Membership predictably skyrocketed once the game was free. But more importantly, the new microtransactions dwarfed previous subscription sales, not only saving the game, but increasing the total corporate revenue by 16% in one year. So he's going to talk about the state, really what he's referencing here is the difference between stated and revealed preference. They state they don't like it, but they wind up spending a lot more money the other way, right? A full 70% of Candy Crush users have never paid a dime for the game, yet it still brings in several million dollars a day. When we say we, we say we hate it, but the balance sheet proves otherwise. I do think the idea of a free demo with the option to purchase the entire game is a fair one. And he talks about it's also not a new idea. And coin-operated arcades were engaging in microtransactions long before their current wave of popularity. And finally, I'll close on it with a few parting words of wisdom from Sid. So many of our wildest dreams have turned out to be laughably conservative that it's hard to write off anything as impossible. Making games is simply the best job in the world. And I think that in life, as in game design, you have to find the fun. There is joy out there waiting to be discovered, but it might not be where you expect it. You can't decide what something's going to be before you embark on it, and you shouldn't stick with a bad idea just because you're fond of it. Take action as quickly and repeatedly as possible. Take advantage of what you already know and take liberties with tradition. But most importantly, take the time to appreciate the possibilities and make sure all of your decisions are interesting ones. And that is where I'll leave it for the full story. I highly, highly recommend reading the book. And I think this book actually pairs nicely. If you have not also listened to, or excuse me, uh, read Masters of Doom, highly recommend you buy that book as well. So uh, buy the book using the link that's in, if you buy the book using the link that's in the show notes on your podcast player, you'll be supporting the podcast at the same time. I think that's 195 books down, 1,000 to go. And I'll talk to you again soon.